When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Christopher Sellers. He is professor of history at Stony Brook University and the author of several major works of environmental history, including Crabgrass Crucible, Dangerous Trade, and Hazards of the Job. He joins me today to discuss his brand new book. It's called Race and the Greening of Atlanta. Inequality, Democracy, and Environmental Politics in an Ascendant Metropolis. It came out just a couple of weeks ago from the University of Georgia Press. Dr. Sellers, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Uh, pleased to be here uh, and get to talk about this book that has been so long in gestation and finally is out into the world. Well, the results are just phenomenal. I mean, it really, it's just such a, such a, such a major work. It, it makes a big contribution. You know, we have some books that shine a light on the environmental dimensions of the black freedom struggle. We have now quite a few works that probe kind of the whiteness of post-war environmentalism in the United States. But, but here you look at these moments, these movements just side by side and in one city and set in the full context of politics and economic transformations of the second half of the 20th century. And it's just really totally revelatory. And everyone should just pause the program right now, go order the copy or get your library to order the copy, then turn us back on. And, uh, because we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of, of just the book's riches in, in the time that, that we have today or today here. But just to start off, I wonder, um, you know, could you tell us why you decided to write this book at this time and how you sit it, see it fitting into the long arc of your career? Well, uh, it, it has been a long process of gestation. And, you know, I think I, I really I started the first interviews in this book back in the early 2000s. It was part of the Crabgrass Crucible project. It was my sort of southern city stu- case study uh, looking at Atlanta. Uh, so, you know, that that uh, pro- that project itself took a while. And so 2012, I guess that book came out. But the process of getting that project into sort of its first book iteration with uh, New York and Los Angeles, uh, I, I came to realize how different the Atlanta case was. Uh, it was just it. I, I found myself constantly in trying to write these three case studies together, having to talk about the exceptions that the exceptional history of Atlanta, just a different region with a different past, a different uh, trajectory, uh, and there were so many differences too that uh, I, I had to basically drop it out of Grabgas Crucible because it was it was getting in the way of making the main points that I think emerged in uh, writing about Los Angeles and New York. 
but I couldn't give it up. I mean, I, this is my uh, region, actually, and I've never written anything about Southern history, but, I, uh, but uh, I grew up there in the South. And so this is kind of my way of sort of engaging that my own past, that of my family and, you know, place was where I grew up. Uh, really trying to get a grip on what my parents went through. <laughs> and, and so this is, it also, it moved me also to uh, to more of a whole city approach because I, I don't think you can really understand uh, the differences between Atlanta and cities in other regions without looking at the whole and looking at the long, uh, the long history as well. Uh, and really digging into those differences, looking at the poorer parts of the city as well as the richer parts uh, and then stepping back and, and, you know, I, I, I know you're, you're, uh, so, so, so I think it's, it's, it's really, uh, moved my thinking along, uh, and, and really been a joy to, to try and figure out, uh, and come up with using my historian's chops to really try and understand where we are today, uh, in the South, but also it's, it's a national uh, it, it's a story with national implications, as we see today, with all the to-do that hap- is happening in Atlanta. I mean, politics is really, Atlanta is one of the, is, the, is a nation, is a national center stage. Uh, and so I think my book helps to explain in a lot of ways why. Uh, Absolutely. And I want to come back to the exceptional nature of Atlanta in a minute. But first, just thinking about how you went about writing this book and how you approached the topic and the tools you used. You, certainly there's historians chops here on display, but you, you talk about employing a methodological hybrid and you're using the insights of several fields of history, but also you're looking at other fields, other you know, disciplines beyond history. Could, could you say a bit about some of the, maybe some of the shortcomings in the literature about, about cities in, in this time and, and that any one of those fields is not well equipped to address and then how you, how you tried to blend methods together to address them? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's been a lot of my struggle to pull this book together is to try and figure out what the method should be. Uh, and I think, you know, my training is in environmental history and uh, that so that's kind of a starting point for me. Only for me, uh, it was really difficult to get, especially at the political side, the political institutions in their history uh, through the lens of environmental history. I think environmental history is kind of veered away from political uh analysis and dynamics and so on as it's, I mean, it's opened up lots of new pathways in doing so. Uh, very interesting where, where things have gone, but it's also made us, made us uh, less capable, I think, of really addressing environmental politics. And so I'm, uh, this is a part of my effort. So I've reached out to, to political history for one thing and really and folded that in uh, more robustly uh, into my account. Uh, and develop some ways like citizenship analysis and so on to connect uh, environmentalism, environmental movements with the larger political landscape. And I think that's a lot of the the environmental history that does deal with politics is just dealing with the environmental movement. Uh, and it really is, is so centered on that one vein of politics. But I think to understand where we are today, especially a moment where a major party is now uh, is now uh, shorn itself of a, many of the many of the principles of environmental citizenship. Uh, that that's that's a moment that I think environmental history really needs to grrapple with. Now, other other I may be going on a little long here, but but um, 
But I think also I was watching the new political history emerge over the last uh, decade and more uh, as historians move from social history back into political history. And I think that uh, literature has had trouble dealing with the environment. I mean, uh, you look at the syntheses that that the new political historians have come up with about the 20th century, and they really have trouble sort of where does environment fit in, even though we know it's such it, it, it it's you know i think i have a personal interest in this so i'm a little bit biased but i think it really is has become ever more critical to our nation's future and politics and political economy uh to to take environment seriously and those battles have become ever more pointed as well uh in in the nation's uh, political culture. And so we need a way of, of fitting that into our politics. So the, one of the ways I've, I've, one of my innovations is to try and, find, and, and, and come up with a way in this Atlanta book of doing that, of showing how critical environmental politics became after environmentalism became a recognized cause and movement and with its own, uh, with its own organizations and sort of political projects and so on for the state. Uh, so connecting that to the to the growth of the state and also talking about how the, the erasure of uh, the environmental sides to the state was a part of this new conservative movement, uh, just reducing the state to being about welfare and so on. Um, so 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 and then the finally final leg of this was economic. Uh, I've been uh, for a long while I've been watching as uh, this new economic literature has emerged, a lot of it by economists on uh, economic inequality and income gaps and works like uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, Capital in the 21st Century. Uh, and I think labor historians, economic historians, urban historians have indeed addressed economic inequality and they continue to do so and realize uh, the importance of those those kinds of divides, but but without really integrating the insights from these economists in, in terms of waxing and waning uh, income gaps and wealth gaps and and that sort of thing, uh, it's become such a part of our our political culture too. I mean, but uh, uh, historians have been a little slow, I think, to absorb that. And having done a class for you know. Two decades now on wealth and inequality in the modern corporate age, I've I've had to co- acquaint myself with that literature, and I think figured out a way in this Atlanta book of folding that kind of insight and that kind of angle on history into uh, the mix and making it an integral part of of trying to explain why Atlanta has these waxing and waning uh, commitments to democracy. Um, it's really, I mean, it's really thrilling the way it comes together. And so, the, you know, in the subtitle, we have inequality, democracy, and environmental politics, and it really has an, an equal amount to say about each of those things. And for that reason, it not only helps environmental historians kind of draw from those other fields, but I think it really speaks to those other fields as well and, and brings a, a question of what the environmental movement is doing at the, for, the, for those other things is, and how, how they um, are um, implicated in them. And so I, I, mean, I think we'll see this in the conversation, but it's really, it, it delivers on the promise of, of the title in that way. Um, so, <laughs> so starting here, I'll stop fanboying and we'll get on here. Um, so thinking about the origin, you know, the chapter, chapter one here, you begin with sort of a prehistory of Atlanta before World War II. What, what do people need to know about the city um, to understand the rise of, of post-war civil rights and environmental movements there? Well, I think they need to get, uh, people need to get beyond the, the, the Chamber of Commerce hype about Atlanta. 
the 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 claims about Atlanta being such an icon of the New South. I think it, if you look at the numbers, really in the economic side of things, Atlanta was pretty modest sized city. Uh, other cities had bigger uh, textile industries and mills and so on and. Uh, it was also a city that was tied. I mean, the critical thing for me in, in contrasting in a place like Los Angeles or New York is that it was tethered to this impoverished hinterland uh, that that really became a drag, I think, on on uh, economically speaking, on its growth, on its population growth, on its size. Uh, Atlanta was was uh, quite small, less than uh, below the. Uh, 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 it was not in the top 25 cities until after World War II. Uh, and that because of uh, various um, <laughs> annexations and so on. So, so, um, so you know, puncturing that Chamber of Commerce narrative and looking at the, the poverty, the inequality, you also see, uh, I went into the tax records and looked at the distribution and that, that economic inequality, it, it was really growing over the early 20th century as as the Jim Crow regime really uh, really uh, got going and, and dominated the politics of the region. Uh, so I think that economic inequality, the growing uh, share of wealth that was held just by a, a tiny white economic elite is a big part of the story. Also, how they didn't have a middle, as large a middle class as uh, other cities, even in the South. Uh, not to mention the North, where uh, industry was a bigger uh, contributor to the, the economic pie and so on. Uh, so I think those things, as well as the uh, the upshot of that, is also really remarkable uh, political inequality. Uh, Jim Crow was not just about suppressing blacks. It was about just keeping a white elite in charge. And those electorates from, from the Jim Crow policies like literacy tests and all white primaries, that turnout was only 18% in Atlanta all the way up through the 1950s. Really remarkable how, how, how constrained democracy was in this time period, which is why political scientists now talk about it as, as authoritarian. Uh, it's electoral democracy, but it was a racially authoritarian regime. Uh, and that was true of the state at the state level where you had rustic rule and the Talmudges and so on. It was also true at the city level uh, and was reflected in, for instance, the 1950s decision making about urban renewal. I mean, who told those shots? A very tiny clique of, of people uh, in Atlanta and then the state highway department. Really, you know, they determined where those where those routes meant and whose neighborhoods were going to be decimated. So. I was struck by the way you d described um, Atlanta as, in your words, an American face of unsettling global trends. In what ways did Atlanta have more more in common with other cities around the world than with other American cities? Yes, I think uh, in terms of you look at the homeowner patterns, uh, homeownership was down uh, in, in, you know, 30 percent, that kind of thing. Plus, homeownership was closer to the center. There's really a, a remarkable contrast with those Chicago school maps where uh, based on, you know, northeastern, northern, uh, north central city, uh, but they become the iconic sort of uh, understanding of city geography. But uh, Atlanta had did not have the poverty in the center at the core. It had it had some of that, but 
poverty was also, it also really dominated the edges of Atlanta. And in that sense, it was much more like the, the megalopolis is today of the developing world. Uh, and even into 1960, uh, you had the edges of Atlanta uh, having many shanty towns and uh, uh, lots of reliance on at houses and the kinds of things you associate with uh, with those with the uh, urban edge shanty towns in a place like uh, uh, Monterey or Manila, um, even today. So that pattern was actually the way that cities grew in the 19th century uh, in in Europe and North America as well, but. Uh, Changes, in, at least in the Northeast and in the richer parts of the, the U.S., uh, really began to make the city mo look more like the Chicago model, starting in the 20th century, early 20th century, but especially by the middle of the 20th century. And Atlanta was just not there. It looked more like uh, a developing world city as late as 1960. Um, when you start to chart the rise of, of post-war civil rights movement in the city, um, you place an especial emphasis on housing and geography. I mean, we have the canonical figures are there too. MLK is there in the story, but what do, what do we learn from emphasizing the, the attention that the movement paid to housing and geography? Well, one of the, one of the, the connections that, that that enables uh, this book to make is to, to the New Deal. And to those those policies that really created a more uh, uh, equitable playing field, especially in, in terms of wages. I mean, the New Deal gets a justifiably bad rap uh, because of its racial, its red not its redlining, and so on. In Atlanta, and and really this is true across the country as well, uh, the share of black homeowners actually rose doubled at the same, moving at the same pace between 1940 and 1960, as did white ownership, even though it was much less, it was still about half the white rate, both in 1940 and 1960, black home ownership really expanded, even if in Atlanta, Atlanta is a, a great example of how, how it was really constrained by Jim Crow, Jim Crow uh, housing policies and so on. Now, uh, so that's, you have an expanding, and, and part of this is, I think, to have a movement and that energizes a, a, a whole community, that community needs to have, needs to have hope and aspiration and the feeling that some things can change. And I think this, the, the rising economic opportunities, rising wages because of the, the minimum wage laws, uh, especially, uh, and as well as some of the housing policies, black a black middle class not only expanded, but this this hope arose and came to be cultivated. And and the the groups that were pushing this, like uh, the Urban League, uh, they were well aware of this, and their hope was that. And they actually, Urban League was actually pretty complicit with many of these segregation policies, but they their. Uh, what they did push for was more black home ownership, uh, higher quality housing for blacks and so on. And they really connected it to citizenship and to the sense that this would also create a kind of a subversive, a subversive sentiment within the black community. And it did actually, it got further out of hand than the urban leaders uh, realized. But I, I think there is that connection. I think that, uh, just looking at the economics, I mean, you need to look at the at the at the the development of a sort of a political project uh, 
that involves uh, aspirations for change. Uh, and it was still, of course, in, in uh, the case of the Black Civil Rights Movement by the Black Church. And, uh, and of course, the, many of the leaders were reverends and so on, like Martin Luther King Jr. as well as Sr. Uh, but um, so there was a cult cultural piece to it that, uh, and, and a religious piece too. Uh, but, but I think also this sort of expanding opportunity created by the New Deal, really, that's my argument that it, it also created wellsprings that, that uh, you know, there's somewhat recognized in the literature, but making that connection through looking at the housing and the changes in housing and looking at that suburban house that Martin Luther King moved into in 1960. I mean, it really, uh, you know, yep, set back with a lawn and, and you know, fl- uh, uh, shrubs and flowers in the front and so on. So uh, to symbolize opportunity, but, uh, and, and that's where nature also figures in. I think nature becomes this kind of uh, uh, dreaming place where people can begin to to see possibilities and to imagine themselves a, a different future not just for themselves and their families and home and in these individual homes but for their community and so i think that's kind of that's what i'm trying to get at in looking at these these neighborhood level transformations uh and and the environments that that uh that they put into place and the people moving into um Another place where you identify the kind of flowering of, of post-war environmentalism in the city is in the fight against water pollution. Um, and unique in Atlanta compared to other fights elsewhere, it's not really about toxins in the water so much as human waste and, and, and um, bacterial in, 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 um, you know, pollution in this way. Um, but what's, what's one of the thrilling moves in your book here is, is to look at this in the context of the end of rustic rule and, and the opening up of democracy at long last in Atlanta in the 1960s following important Supreme Court decisions and other things. Um, how are those things connected, water pollution and democratization? Yeah, that was pretty cool to discover this and, you know, think through, oh, yeah, wow. You know, this new water pollution system that a new water pollution law uh, that they put in after Sanders becomes a governor in 1963. That's right at the time that you're also moving. Georgia has to move to one one man, one vote because the decisions. And so the whole political system is being reshuffled. And Sanders is is running, he actually makes a big deal of how he's going to tackle water pollution. Uh, so that becomes his appeal. As the electorate suddenly is expanded, as urban voters suddenly have now uh, uh, considerably more clout in the Georgia legislature in terms of congressional seats and so on and apportionments, uh, th- that water pollution becomes a critical issue in in uh, among politicians who, who represent this this new uh, uh, new political uh, transformation, uh, this democratization uh, move, and so I think going back, you have to understand how water pollution was. You know, it was it was seeping up. It was becoming not it, it, not just into people's uh, the rivers that ran through people's backyards and streams and so on, uh, because there was this big transition away from the outhouses uh, that in Georgia was really happening after World War II. Um, but, um, you also have a lot of discontent and, and the, the Talmudist, you know, Herman, uh, uh, Eugene Talmudge, both recognized, uh, were, were made to become aware of this 
and at least made noises of addressing it. And, and in the middle of the 1950s, uh, the Talmudist successors uh, actually set up, uh, they, they, they under, under the 1948 uh, federal uh, water pollution control amendments, you could set up water pollution control boards with the states. So a lot of the states had already done this, but it was only in the 50s that the Talmudists began to do this. And of course, they're very anti-statist and uh, are really, I mean, Talmud Eugene used to talk about the poor government as being his goal. <laughs> government and, uh, you know, also it turns out with water pollution, poorly executed government. Because the, the, what they set up, the system was, and this is where, you know, I'm writing this as I'm watching the Trump administration come in. And what they're envisioning for the EPA is like very similar because it's all cooperative, no penalties. You put business people on the governing committee and you don't have any expertise involved except for consultants in the health department who go in and do some measurements and work with the, the companies to, to begin to address uh, whatever problem crops up where there's a lot of complaints. So it becomes kind of a, it, 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 they really bring almost, they bring almost no court cases. They penalize no one really. Uh, and this is all into the early sixties as water pollution, as the industrialization of Georgia, Atlanta and Georgia continues to accelerate. And the Talmudists are really happy to push this along but also uh, really reluctant to clamp down on any of the cases of water pollution that are really getting people uh, up in arms. The League of Women Voters starts to, to latch onto the issue, some of the garden clubs do, but nothing's happening at the state level. Uh, and actually, they're, they're allowing people to come to these meetings and, and occasionally to speak out, but then what happens? It gets buried in this sort of, uh, 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 that in health department sort of visits and deliberations and negotiations with the company where they always say we're, we're working on it. Uh, and so uh, pretty, uh, it, it, it's really uh, turns out to be uh, extremely ineffectual and they're only spending like $300,000 at all on pollution control in Georgia uh, by the time that Sanders comes along and begins to run on a platform of, of stricter water pollution control. So what he does the new law he brings in with his new legislature that's reformed now with a widened electorate under one man, one vote. He he uh, creates a much more empowered department, uh, a water pollution control board. Uh, it has a professional at the head uh, rather than an appointee. Uh, it, he can also take punitive action against companies, and he does. And he begins to get a staff. And actually, they go out there and start sampling rivers without having to be called out by citizen protests. So they began to take oversight and monitoring uh, uh, surveillance of, of Georgia's rivers. And it's the first studies you have of the Chattahoochee. Uh, and, and the federal government is already starting to do this, actually. Uh, actually, the first studies of the Chattahoochee are, are being done at this very moment by, uh, by uh, the federal water pollution control body. Uh, because it's in charge of, of, um, of interstate uh, rivers, and it's it's begun to step up its initiatives. But uh, the Georgia uh, Water Pollution Control Board, board under Rock Howard uh, really gets out ahead of that, 
and becomes quite aggressive in pursuing uh, the, the uh, industrial as well as the municipal polluters. Uh, and so, you know, modern pollution control is born in Georgia at this very moment that Georgia is transitioning uh, rather suddenly into a more democratic uh, governance and, uh, and regime. And, and the movement really takes off. And by the time we get to the first Earth Day in the city, you're seeing it as not just that, that a widened electorate has allowed the movement to kind of arrest control of, of government in some ways and, and make a more responsive government to environmental concerns, but also, in your words, you, it, the movement itself is opening new democratizing avenues. In what ways does it do that? Right. Well, I think the best way to look at that, to think about that, is in terms of parks, and where, where the state government was with parks, where also the city government was with parks by, by 1963 or so versus where these new groups that coalesce, like the Georgia Conservancy, like the Georgia chapter, of the, the Atlanta chapter of the Sierra Club, what they want, the Friends of the River, as the Chatt- Chattahoochee River. Uh, the parks that were being, that, for one thing, there was very little park development with the, under the Talmudists. Uh, under rustic rule. Uh, I mean, they were most of them from rural counties and were not, you know, they had a lot of countryside around them that get, they could kind of take for granted. So that was not an issue at all. And plus, they didn't believe in, uh, in uh, government, really, other than the ones that built highways for their, their, you know, county elites and so on. And the notable exception of Stone Mountain, right? That's the one yeah, thing. Oh, that was- <laughs> Park actually, that was the first big urban park, metropolitan area park that the state government was willing to 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 pony up for. Uh, in the late fifties, they took it over, and you know that was because it had this big emblem that that, that was what they restarted. They restarted that whole the carving that uh, Stone Mount, Mountain is now so infamous for of the Confederate leaders, of the Confederate yeah. leaders, mm-hmm. the leaders of the Confederacy, the sort of lost cause. Uh, mm-hmm. so that was, that was the real appeal of the Stone Mountain uh, Park uh, and creation of that. But they didn't create park. And that was a whole, it was also a recreation park where people could do, uh, well, you know, more recreational kinds of, of, of activities, but not a, de- definitely not a nature park. And in fact, People were disturbed. Some of the people like biologists at Emory and so on, as well as some of the garden groups were disturbed by how uh, how there were they were beginning to find some endangered species there on on Stone Mountain uh, uh, ecosystems uh, that that uh, inhabited these pools that that formed in the, uh, up, up on the granite face. Uh, some pretty unique ecology there that was that was subsequently you know, erased by all the recreational development. Uh, they, uh, so so um, that was one of the impetuses, I think, uh, for for uh, the new initiatives that emerge once Georgia democratizes uh, in a big way, and these groups see opportunity, oppor- the political opportunity structure emerges where. Uh, uh, actual citizen groups can actually steer the direction of park making, both within the city uh, and beyond the city, on the city's edges and so on. Uh, and that's where you have the growth of, of a Georgia conservancy. Uh, you, have, uh, you have people coming together, uh, garden clubs, 
uh, networks of garden clubs, networks of the Ornithological Society as well, uh, joining together uh, a call by a congressman, a liberal congressman who is actually, he votes for the Civil Rights Act uh, and is, is subsequently uh, booted from his congressional seat after one term. He too ran uh, ran for Congress after the reshuffling of uh, one man, one vote. Uh, a new congressional seat opened up, uh, and this is this is James Mackey, uh, and uh, he and some of the activists uh, who are pushing uh, begin who are pushing for nature parks, ecologically authentic parks. They're responding, I think, also to uh, the 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 need for ecological authentic parks. It's something that's really uh, it emerges in suburbs where you already have a lot of grass and sort of domesticated horticulture. But uh, people are saying, well, we want real nature. Uh, and so uh, real nature is wilder nature and, and nature that, in which the ecology is actually preserved at, uh, for, uh, for people to see it and experience it rather than paved over for, uh, for ball fields and, um, and uh, sort of uh, recreational kinds of activities or boats and and uh, uh as they had in stone mountain the the uh, lake and so on uh so so um so so yeah the the um these groups emerge really coalesce in the middle to late 60s uh, lots of people coming together most of them if you look at their where they hail from they do hail from the more affluent and white suburbs almost exclusively white uh, to begin to push for um, public control over land and public control that will secure ecological uh, nature parks, ecological authenticity. The other place is the river. The Chattahoochee River becomes a real focal point for a lot of this pushing and organizing. Uh, and that's partly because development is really uh, is really uh, overwhelming parts of the river, uh, especially down around Cobb County and uh, Marietta, uh, all these new malls opening up. People are seeing the development, the, the sprawl. They're starting to see the sprawl of Atlanta really uh, move into higher a higher gear. And so that becomes the grounds for, uh, and a lot of this is, is that development is happening where wealth has already begun to concentrate, North Atlanta. Uh, and so a lot of the development, like the Chattahoochee uh, Save the River movement, uh, is uh, is concentrated in the wealthier, wider parts that are that are seeing this this acceleration of development. Uh, and but it's a collective. I mean, yes, it's home ownership is is at the root of it, and that's an individual thing. But homeowners, their homes are not isolated uh, islands. All those islands are connected by land and, and by rivers that run through them. And and so that's this whole idea, ecological citizenship or, or environmental citizenship that emerges is about, well, we need to bring the state in. We need to have some kind of, of, of collective, uh, collective say over what happens to these, these natural lands around us. It shouldn't be just all up to the private marketplace. Jimmy Carter is one of several really recognizable figures who who appear in your book, and and we we learn new things about. Um, and you you situate Carter. I mean, you identify him as many scholars do as maybe the first neoliberal president, but also you acknowledge that he's coming out of the Georgia Conservancy, and he has he has the kind of the marks of this 
um, democratized kind of environmentalism in his in his past before his governor and then as president. Um, and I was struck by the what kind of a seeming contradiction. And when you claim that he both as president, you know, he sped the tread toward this top-down environmental governance. And you mentioned expertise earlier, and we've seen expertise and tension with democracy back to the progressive era, and it's always kind of there at the heart of progressive politics. So he, he was speeding that, that top-down environmental governance, but he also made what you say are distinct and little-remembered contributions to the rise of, of the environmental justice movement. So can you help explain this seeming contradiction for listeners? Yeah, it is a, it is a contradiction, but I, I think... Uh, if you look at something like a presidential administration, it's going to be rife with contradictions. It's not very good. And I think, um, so Carter himself personally, I think is really committed to environment and, and especially the conservation, uh, the conservation project. Um, he's also, he also, his administration becomes the administration that really builds out something like the EPA and OSHA, uh, occupational safety and health. That's a little bit more, uh, less predictable from his Georgia background because uh, the labor movement was not a big thing in Georgia, you know, work and so on. And Carter had not really uh, uh, had had not really bonded with labor le- many labor leaders in Georgia. Although you know he tried to, but but uh, he didn't. The labor didn't have nearly the same presence uh, in his governorship as it did in his presidency. And I think that's partly because he turned things over to uh, to uh, experts from uh, the Northeast, uh, from parts of the country like Eula Bingham, who had uh, who had background in places like Ohio with that that had much stronger labor movement. And he saw the wisdom of that. Uh, that's uh, so. So I think in that sense, he opened up. That's and of course. Labor and labor activism is is one piece of and the environmental. It becomes one piece of the environmental justice movement uh, as that emerges in the late seventies uh, into the eighties. Um, but I think the other piece, the other piece, is what um, is is what uh, what the Carter administration how how it also saw the need uh, and. Uh, it, for uh, for environmental uh, environmental oversight of cities, not just the edges of cities, uh, not just the the sprawling edges, but also urban environments, and so that actually became a theme. I mean, I, I one of the things that Costel, uh, 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 who is the head of the EPA, he made this a point of of sort of reaching beyond the suburban constituencies to try and and marshal uh, marshal people like farmers. He tried to get the environmental opponents on board, but part of this was he also began to reach out to to um, city constituencies, including the Urban League. Uh, and so uh, those conferences that EPA helped sponsor in the late in the late seventies. Uh, where they bring together people from the Sierra Club and people from the Urban League together in, in, in national forums and so on. Uh, that's that's kind of I, I was surprised at that. I was surprised to see that. Uh, but you know, talking with some of the people involved in that, I think, including some of them who were who are actually from Atlanta, uh, they told me, well, we got in there and we realized that the environmental movement, environmental movement was too wide and too sort of centered in suburbs and it really needed to have a broader base. And so they actually made some effort 
uh, prior to the, the you know, Warren County and the involvement of, of the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference that I talk about later, prior to that even, uh, the way was being paved for uh, groups like the Sierra Club, including the Atlanta chapter. I mean, some of those people from the Atlanta chapter of the Sierra Club were at those meetings that called by the, in Detroit, I think it was, uh, called in part by the EPA to begin to look at urban environments. And they brought the message back home to Atlanta, to the Atlanta Sierras. And so that dialogue began. Um, yeah, you, you've shown in your earlier work um, and others as well that suburban sprawl is this major catalyst for environmentalism in mid-century America. What's interesting, and we see some of that at that time in Atlanta too, but what's so interesting is, is how fast Atlanta grows and sprawls later Right. And we have it in the 80s. I think you have it somewhere in the book that stat that, let's see, Greater Atlanta led the nation in starts for single family homes for five straight years in the late 80s and early 90s. Right. So and that's a very different time in especially in the, in the, in the uh, economic history of, of the city and the country. Um, so how does that later date in a time when, when inequality is rising in the nation and in the city? How did that affect the, the politics of, of, of sprawl and environmentalism? Yeah. That's a yeah. That's another big question that I, I really uh, I have a complex answer. <laughs> it's such a it's, it's such a tough one. But I think there. I mean, one of the things to recognize first is the similarities between the problems that came with sprawl, you know, earlier versus later. So the similarities. I mean, you have concerns about development and and the paving over of natural space or open natural spaces. Uh, you also have concerns about air pollution. Uh, and air pollution, Atlanta's air pollution in this time period is really beginning to look more like uh, that of Los Angeles. Uh, lots of ozone, a real ozone problem uh, starts to crop up. Uh, and in, the, in the 1980s, it really becomes remarkably uh, worse. Uh, and so that even the same pollutants, because it's, of course, it's about automobiles and uh, sprawl itself is, is auto, auto, automobile centric development. So there's similarities uh, that have to do with the structural nature of sprawl itself in the 20th century. But but they're also, yeah, the, the, it's very important also to recognize the differences and especially the, the role, I think, of an environmental inequality uh, in in shaping the response. Um I mean, it's the timing is also uh, timing of other things is also critical, I think. But this is a period when uh, when sprawl itself is becoming more sort of unequal. So sprawl on the one hand, uh, I mean, our typical idea about sprawl is that uh, as this is based from the mid 20th century in places like Los Angeles, that it's about middle class homeownership spreading outward and so on. Uh, I think with with. Atlanta, both North Atlanta, North Atlanta is the wealthy side, wealthy white side of Atlanta. That's the biggest sort of beneficiary of sprawl, where sprawl goes the fastest, the, fur, the furthest and the fastest. Uh, but Atlanta, because of the rising economic inequality in Atlanta, the middle class itself is beginning to uh, lose traction uh, in terms of the share of economic growth uh, and more of these, these uh, the sprawl, the new developments are being oriented toward luxury markets and so on. Uh, and that group brings up another kind, another kind of sprawl too, 
And this is lower income folks, especially whites who are not so trapped in the city. Uh, and uh, they're moving out to where uh, further out to the excerpts and so on, where home ownership is um, is uh, it, it, where the land is more affordable and so on. At the same time, blacks are moving out if they have the means, but they're being trapped inside the city. And so you have this this hollowing out of wealth from the downtown. Uh, and so that, uh, you know, it makes it it. it, it it, in a way, it puts civil rights activists on the same page in terms of uh, being concerned about sprawl as uh, as environmental activists. And so it creates this moment where there, and there is more reaching out. There is alliance building. Uh, but at the same time, the environmental movement is in, is, situ, is is still kind of invested in um the, the program, the, the program developed earlier, which is about nature and nature preservation. And when they look at sprawl and critique sprawl, they're talking about one thing, whereas when the when the civil rights activists look at sprawl and, and worry about its consequences, they're looking at another thing. So there's a lot of sort of bridge building that happens. And I don't think that that, that uh, my, my sense from looking at Atlanta is that by the 1980s, these, these movements were aligned and they saw the necessity of political um, of, of political alliance if they both were to, to achieve like to get their uh, get their Congress people in office uh, and beginning to find common ground, but not quite there. Uh, that those political projects are, remained distinct, and it's only in the 1990s I think that you begin. You know the other uh, so there, there there are other pieces of this as well. Uh, in terms of um, the the uh, well, maybe maybe I should I should stop there. I'm, I'm I'm wandering a little bit. No, I'd love to hear more about that because I think it, I've done a bad job of of helping you make clear to readers the way that you you see a lot of uh, I don't know similarities is too soft a word, but you you watch dual processes of democratization being um, you know. The, the, the civil rights and the environmental movements are both benefiting from and producing democratization throughout this time, but very much on parallel, tra- on parallel, but separate tracks. Um, and then it's really, I was surprised to, to see, and, and I was convinced that it's really in the late eighties where we might think things are, you know, are, are quite dismal is where we see the most convergence or at least maybe, maybe now you're saying into the nineties, we start to see actual convergence where they're actually working together. So for instance, um, to put, make this real, we have a Southern environmental assembly in 1988 in the city where the SCL, SCLC is a sponsor of that. John Lewis gives the, gives the opening remarks. Um, and I wonder if you want to say more about the way that Lewis and other Black Atlantan politicians kind of um, represent this kind of moment of, of convergence and, and how, why it wasn't any closer, why it didn't last longer, if you want to. Well, I, I think you have to... Yeah, so, so I think th- there, is this, th- there is this moment of convergence uh, I mean, the other piece of this, though, is that that uh, just to, to prepare the ground for this, one other point uh, is is the is that uh, in, in places like North Atlanta, uh, with the emergence of an environmental state, with the now you have the government actually actively uh, creating park nature parks and so on, uh, a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the, the needs that people saw in the late 60s, early 70s for for this environmental uh, citizenship project 
are less concerning, especially as the upper middle class whites uh, find their own neighborhoods and and sort of separate themselves. And there is a growing class segregation within suburbs. Uh, they separate themselves from the rest of Atlanta. So they're less concerned and it opens the door to a new conservative anti-environmental politics. And so a lot of that sort of the kind of sentiments that that motivated uh, environmentalists in Atlanta in the in the 60s and 70s are less of a concern to, to many of these people in these really wealthy uh developments in North Atlanta where they where they fold in all the nature and that becomes a big sales pitch but they have less reason to push for the state to be involved and are more susceptible to the anti-statism of this new conservative movement uh, that the Republican Party then I mean it starts with the Democratic Party but the Republicans really take it over uh, in this very time period they're doing this uh, so I think that the the swallowing up of, of suburban environmental commitments by environmental consumption as well as the new conservatism, I think that also tilts the the makeup of the environmental movement in Atlanta in the in a kind of urban direction. Uh, so more of the real activists are, are within the city as well itself, and that's another factor that I think is is leading to this kind of convergence uh, that that is represented by that 1988 uh, Southern Assembly. Yeah, and we and we, I mean, you, you do a nice job using Newt Gingrich as a, as a way into some of this this reversal, and and to say not only just why why the Republican Party reversed itself on environmental policy, but, more, but much more broad than that, that actually this reversal helped to revive the the moribund, moribund Republican Party in the state in that way more broadly. How how did that work? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think that's that's really critical to understanding why uh, environmentalists have all these hopes uh, in the in the late eight, late '80s that are then dashed. Uh, is that um, so? What Newt Gingrich does is he he starts out as an environmentalist, and that's his calling card as an early aspiring you know congressional candidate in the in '72 and '74. I, you know, I'm a charter member of the Georgia Conservancy. I created an environmental studies department in my college and uh, really care about this stuff. And uh, so, but he realized he loses. I mean, he loses a couple of times uh, and he realizes watching, watching other congressional candidates uh, like Larry McDonald, a Democrat who becomes uh, and John Bircher, uh, who, who develops this whole anti, he, he's opposed actually to national parks uh, as against the Constitution, uh, and really uh, uh, makes political hay with rural voters, I think, because of his opposition to the Chattahoochee Park. So Newt is watching this. He's also uh, he begins to cozy up to the big uh, and, and big industrialists, especially who are being slammed with these OSHA fines and environmental uh, penalties uh, and wire. Uh, the uh, wire uh, wire company in his biggest uh, in Carrollton, um, and uh, begins to tone down his environmentalism. So, in by 1978, uh, when he does win congressional election, uh, he has now really soft pedaled his uh, his endorsements, former endorsements by the Georgia Conservancy, Sierra Club. Uh, his opposition to pollution, it kind of uh, way down his list of campaign priorities. Instead, what he's attacking, what he's attacking is the welfare state, uh, 
so the government is not there for him. Uh, he's not, at least he's not talking about it. It's not there really to protect environments. It's there to provide for other people, welfare, the poor people, the, the less deserving members of the society. And he, for he goes on from there to, to, to forge a kind of a, a, a radically anti-statist message. It's radical for this time, but it soon, it soon becomes pretty normal for the Republican Party, uh, where, uh, where the whole goal is cutting government. And cutting government opens the door for markets and for private actors. And that's really where progress and technological, uh, technological uh, change come from. Um, and this is this whole conservative opportunity society. Uh, he's, he remains, I mean, he also uh, bonds with the new um, religious conservative movement, which is, becomes a, a pillar of, of Georgia conservatism uh, as it, as it uh, asserts itself against a, a, a sort of imagined decline of American culture and, and morals and so on. Uh, on issues like um, like uh, the ERA, the women's women's uh, rights uh, and abortion, of course, is a big issue, and gay rights is also in there, and uh, so so he he bonds with those those people as well, um, and, uh, and 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 it's it's a struggle over the 1980s. He becomes a national a national leader. Uh, in Washington D.C., uh, leading the Republican charge uh, to get uh, to get the Reagan administration's agenda through the Congress, uh, and uh, but he but the Republicans remain uh, a, a minority force really until the early '90s. Uh, that it's after uh, after 1990 that the tide is turned and and this great white shift occurs. Now, re- white voters in Georgia are already voting. Uh, uh, voting for people like Ronald Reagan, uh, preferring uh, Republican presidential candidates, but they still prefer Georgia uh, Democrats uh, for statewide office. Uh, and this is up until the 1990s. And it's really with the various changes that come in after 1988, 1990, uh, that, that, that uh, he was suddenly... Uh, is in charge of a party that by 1996, it's the Republicans make up the the entirety of the white delegation from Georgia to the Congress, uh, which is a really uh, rapid reversal. I believe Gingrich by uh, in 1989 he was still the only Republican representative, uh, congressional representative. But but there's this big shift that goes on. And I think, you know, the Republicans had made, made inroads with, with various statewide races in the, in the 1980s. It was kind of back and forth. Uh, and the 1989 was a low point. But, but uh, they come charging back, roaring back. And, and by the early 2000s, they're in charge of the state government. They're winning all the statewide elections. Uh, last, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so that's a really a frame shift in terms of political power in Georgia. Uh, and by extension, in the nation as well. I mean, Gingrich becomes the leader of this Congress. That I mean, among the other things, they're cutting the they want to cut the EPA budget by a third, and they want to really disempower it uh, in so many ways. That's their proposal. Now, Democratic President Clinton turns that back, but but uh, I think all of these are sort of 
there's there's I think we're still reckoning with the degree of transformation in, in our political arena that happened in those those years in the 1990s. Uh, and, and with the South at the center of it, this great white shift uh, in voter allegiance. And it happens in Atlanta, too. I mean, it's it, for Atlanta, it becomes a su- su- suburban republicanization. It's interesting, too, that, that, I mean, the Republican support in Georgia really is hatched first in the suburbs. Uh, that's where Ging- Gingrich's early support lies, even as he turns, that uh, he's able to win even in his first two races, but it's getting the rural voters on board that is a Republican challenge because they're so ingrained in sort of yellow dog Democratic allegiance. Uh, and that's what happens. That's what happens in the 1990s. They switch. They switch parties. And that's the great white shift. That's uh, the Republicanization of Georgia. Uh, and of course, Atlanta becomes this this place where uh, uh, where uh, blacks and whites there uh, in the Democratic Party have to work together. Uh, and, in, and I think that's also it becomes a, an occasion for uh, the emergence of a black environmentalism as well. And John Lewis is a pretty good example of that. Um, somebody who really uh, talks the talk of environmentalism as well as makes the political allegiances and, and political votes does the right political voting uh and the black caucus itself uh it really it's it's uh legal conservation conservation voter ratings are uh really really go up and 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 it's the black congress people in georgia apportioned through the apportionment of black majority districts it's the black congress people that are the ones that that have lcb ratings in the 90s and then all the Republicans start to tail off, and Gingrich is Gingrich is rating, and I think it's nineteen ninety four zero. I'm sure he was proud of it. Yes. Uh, in the book's conclusion, you look at Atlanta today, and you 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 argue that sustainability efforts that you see happening today tend to or have a hard time not um, exacerbating disparities in, in in racial and class disparities. Um, can you tell us more about this, and and what would what would it take to avoid that? Well, I think that's where that's where the strictly environmental fix, like let's make a park, let's build a beltline, or, or, or sort of, yeah, let's 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 parkify the beltline. You know, that those that those solutions are are are, are going to contribute to inequality rather than uh, rather than alleviate it. And I mean, my my take on that is that. Um, is that they have to be accompanied by a careful attention to the policies that enable this environment, this economic in- inequity. And so things like housing, uh, you need to, you know, you can't just build a, a belt line and, and expect that, that the city is going to, the city is going to somehow become more equitable by extending it, the belt line into the, into the poorer and blacker parts of town. Uh, you also have to have policies that ensure that the housing that is built along the Beltline is gonna have places for people who have less money. If you leave it up to the private sector, uh, private entrepreneurs, actors, they're gonna follow money. 
And that's, I think that's the long, you know, that's the, if there's one lesson uh, from this long history of Atlanta is that, and, and environment and environmental politics, it's that, it's that environmental policy alone is not going to fix something like inequality, economic inequality. Uh, and in fact, if a consumerist solution, uh, uh, reliance only on environmental consumption for, for our society is actually going to make that worse. Uh, unless we also directly address uh, some of the roots of, of economic inequality and things like home ownership and things like wages and salaries uh, and things like um, your right to work uh, or allowing workers, enabling workers to organize and pursue their, their collectively pursue their self-interest um, is, I mean, those are so critical, I think, to, to, uh, to reversing that pattern. And, 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 and we, we're not going to buy our way. We're not going to spend our way out of all these environmental crises we're facing, you know, above all the climate crisis, uh, without also addressing without environmentalists should not just be looking at, at policies to do those, to fix those problems as discrete, uh, problems isolated out from something like economic inequality, but what also need to be proponents of fixing the problems that environmental, that, that private or just isolated environmental solutions are gonna worsen. Uh, and they're gonna make a society less healthy and less democratic. I mean, otherwise we're headed for for uh, you know, something, some rekindling of, of what uh, uh, George's long experience should should uh, should uh, push us away from it's a, a negative negative past that that uh, that is I think hovering out there right now uh, in in some of the political dynamics going on in places like the Fulton County Courthouse. Um, All eyes on Georgia for the next few months or years for sure. Um, I have to let you go, but before I, if I, if I could be allowed a greedy question, greedy, because this book is already such a gift and I could start again and reading it right now and get a lot more out of it. But, um, do you have any future projects you want to tell listeners about before you go? Oh yeah. We're already on an hour. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm working on a lot of, uh, exciting and I think fun stuff. I mean, I have a book that I'm developing on, on climate and climate and petropolises, oil cities, uh, in Texas and Mexico, uh, but also looking to, to looking at, uh, looking at, uh, the development of the oil industry, how it's shaped the cities there. Also, uh, the questions of the questions in politics of pollution and then of climate change that emerged in these cities, uh, and that made them sort of national and international forces for, uh, for, uh, exacerbating, uh, I think our, our climate, uh, our, 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 our greenhouse emissions and our, our uh, the, the impact of climate on our future. I mean, uh, so so that's a pretty exciting book, um, and it's a sort of a different scope too, and a, and a little bit sort of taking on the, the whole question of climate change, and then taking on the whole question of the the American and international petroleum industry. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's my next thing that I'm going to write up. I'm also working on the, I have another project on the EPA, uh, doing as it is a team with my, uh, uh, my colleagues at the environmental data and governance initiative, where we're looking into how at the, the historical impacts and lack of impact of the environmental justice movement on the EPA 
uh, and especially looking at its 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 uh, uses of data and science. And we're looking at EPA resistance as well as incorporation of what environmental justice uh, activists have been fighting for for the last 30 years. But the EPA has been, you know, a source of some, and more recently, a source of hope, but also uh, uh, has a long record of reluctance and hesitancy and resistance, I think, that we're, we're unpacking. That's really exciting stuff on the horizon. But looking at the book that's right in front of us, this wonderful book, it again is called Race and the Greening of Atlanta, Inequality, Democracy, and Environmental Politics in an Ascendant Metropolis. It has just been published by the University of Georgia Press, and its author is, and my guest has been, Christopher Sellers. Chris, thank you so much for your time and for this book. Okay. Thanks for this opportunity, Brian. I really appreciate it.